Thank you very much. I've been away for a little while, so <laughs> I I, <clears throat> I preached at a place called St Ives, not Cornwall. Sorry, <laughs> there's one in Cambridgeshire. Anyone know that one? I was there on the 20th of October, and then I preached at Peterborough on the 27th, and then I preached. Anyone heard of Peterborough? <clears throat> then I preached in Norwich, third November. Then I got hit by a virus, a brutal virus, and I've been horizontal ever since. So it's my first day really back in action. So, um, but I've really so missed worshiping the Lord with you all, and it's a real genuine joy to be um, to be back here with you. So my name is Steph. In case you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're getting towards the end now of our series called Worship and War. <clears throat> Uh, the life of David and looking at the life of David and following it through, through the Psalms. Um, <clears throat> I want to say a few things by way of introductory comments before we get into the meat of the passage today. Just be- I think otherwise what happens is we don't really understand fully what we're seeing and the things that, that are really taking place. Because obviously it's taking place you know, 3,000 years ago. Very different culture. And so sometimes we can kind of not understand. So I want to just speak for a few minutes on the subject of... Um, of inheritance. Um, biblically, <clears throat> inheritance is a massive subject. It's, it's a central subject. So much so that even you know, the Bible describes um, God's people as being his inheritance. Um, the Bible talks a lot about God's plan inheritance for us. And back in the day, it was a huge deal. <clears throat> if you were the firstborn, you would get a double portion of the inheritance. Um, and, 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 and it was a, it was a central thing in people's minds, not just what you're going to get when your parents die, but just more this sense of carrying on the family way. Maybe it's the family business, the family honor. All of this is covered in this subject of inheritance. Now for us, particularly if you are Western, many of us in the room are not Western in our culture and background but particularly if you're western it's not such a huge deal there's the knowledge that for some of us not all of us but for some of us um, when our parents pass on that there will be some kind of financial inheritance but it doesn't feature in a big way in our minds and in our hearts I think maybe part of this is because in our culture we are very how can I describe it we tend to naturally think monogenerationally. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we don't think in a big way about whose son or daughter we are. Uh, and then if we have children, like the fact that what they're then going to experience and then onwards. Whereas biblically, you know, someone wouldn't just say their, their, their name. It would be so-and-so's son or daughter of. And there was a very strong sense of where I've come from and where I'm going and that I'm playing a, I'm playing a part in my generation, but there's, I'm going to be passing on. Family ways, <clears throat> family finances and all these other things. Whereas for us, inheritance is not in any way such uh, a big deal. You'll see it particularly in, in, in many of the families who moved over to the UK. In some of the ways of immigration, you will find it was very common for, for, for people to come and work the most extraordinary hours. I mean, literally, you know... I'm not making a comment on whether it's right or whether it's wrong, but you know, working like seven days a week, sometimes working multiple jobs. And really, in the, the mentality that was driving it was this was that I'm going to have children in this country, 
and I want to get them off to a good start and I will just pour myself out so that they can do it. Does that make sense? That's an extraordinary mentality for many people who are, uh, who are born in this part of the world. That's quite, you look at that and you, that can be a challenging thing. But I want us to have this idea um, in our mind because why am I talking um, about this? And it's this. <clears throat> It's that many people understand Christianity to be essentially about trying, trying to do things right and not do certain wrong things and really living under, living under the eye of, a, I guess, a, a strict kind of master and lord and making sure you don't make too many mistakes and get too many things wrong. And, and what it leads to is a very cautious, kind of fear-driven approach to life. Now... Of course it matters how we live. Of course there are certain things as believers, if we believe in Jesus, we are going to avoid. We don't want to grieve his spirit. There's certain things we're going to say no to, of course. But the driving dynamic of the Christian life isn't so much that I'm some sort of servant under the eye of a, of a, of a strict master who's trying to not make any mistakes and get everything right. That's not the right paradigm. The paradigm is, is that I'm a son. I'm a son and I'm living under the loving eye of my father who has got this extraordinary inheritance for me as part of his family. And that his desire is that me and the rest of his children, that we grow up into his likeness, that we grow up into the family way, that we learn to imbibe in ourselves who he is and what he's like and how he works so that we carry within us the family likeness and are able to be entrusted with the inheritance both in this life and then fully in the age to come. And that changes the way that you approach life as a Christian because what it does is it kind of it sets you up for a, from, a, from a place of security where you know that this isn't about, I mustn't put a foot wrong. The, the whole basis of this is that I've put a foot wrong. The whole basis is that I've put both feet wrong. I've, I've messed up. I've not, I'm, not who I'm, I'm not who I was created to be. Uh, even from day one, I'm born with a bent inside me to go my own way and not live in a godly way. That's the Bible teaching. That's who I am. Um, and yet, through the grace of God shown to us in Jesus, I can be transferred out of that mess and given a brand new start and a brand new heart and set into a new identity where I'm a child of God, part of his family, and so I know I'm secure because he's not under any illusions about me. I'm not under any illusions about myself. He, 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 he's seen right to the heart of the worst bits of me and has chosen me and accepted me in Christ. And he said, right, now come on now, I've got a plan to bring you to glory. The Bible says that God's plan is to bring many sons to glory. So he wants to bring us into our glorious inheritance in terms of transformation uh, and in terms of the ways that we're able to live and the extraordinary things by his power that we're able to do. Now I want you to understand that because if you don't understand that, then the whole framework for looking and understanding stories of David's life, it's it's kind of wrong. It's not what it should be because the whole idea is is that God makes us promises and that as we believe him and continue believing in faith and patience that we come into our inheritance the Bible says the promise that we inherit the promises of God through faith and patience Hebrews 6 verse 12 and so as we're looking at the life of David we're seeing someone whom God has called and made promises to and then, and then his journey walking into those things. And it's a framework for us. 
But I want you to notice something. Most of the sermons in this series have been, how I would describe it, it's like we've been looking at the life of David before he's really coming to his inheritance. Do you understand what I mean? So God promised you're going to be the king. That was a promise that the Lord made him. And so he's living with this promise. He's anointed to be king. And yet, and yet there's another king who hates him uh, and who David is not willing to kill because he recognizes, no, God did anoint this man. And so I have to wait for the timing of God to come into my inheritance. And so there's these years, they reckon probably at seven years, where he's not just waiting, but he's being persecuted and hounded by this king. And, and most of the Psalms we've read in this series have been in that period of his life while he was waiting for his inheritance, while he's in this place of unfulfilled promise. And yet, here's the point. What we've found in him in this season is an extraordinary spiritual vitality. We've found closeness with God. We've found extraordinary sense of knowing and having a relationship with God. And, and then interestingly, as we looked at, I think it was last week, I was ill, I think it was last week, where, where he's now in, his, in the fulfillment of what God has promised him. He's the king, he's, he's victorious, and things start to go wrong. Now isn't that interesting? <clears throat> and the point I want to make is this. It's an introductory point. It's going to be a long sermon. <clears throat> I felt really, I felt, this is a really important point. So often we spend our lives as Christians saying, I can't wait till God answers that prayer. I can't wait till God provides that thing. And when God does that, then everything will be, will be all right. You understand? Actually, if we take this as a framework, David is in the safest, healthiest place while he's waiting for God to fulfill the promises. And then once God has done it, something of a complacency sets in. That's done. And, 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 and so, something, something happens inside him where he doesn't quite know how to live in this season as well as he knew how to live in that season. And I think there's just something about really being careful and understanding that when God takes us through things and, and there are decades for certain promises to be fulfilled and certain things to be provided and certain desires he's put in our hearts to come to fruition, he knows what he's doing. His priority is not to just answer those prayers and things. His priority is to make us like Jesus. And he knows how well we will or won't handle certain things being answered. And so he has a schedule and he works it out. That's not to lead us to passivity, but it is to lead us to peace and contentment. He knows what he's doing. And that there will always be in this life a sense of the not yet. That's good. That's healthy. That keeps us on the, in that place of pursuit and keeps us from that place of complacency. Does that make sense? Just felt really important to underline that. Because I think sometimes people, they fall into despondency. Their heart gets sick. Because God hasn't done this yet. God hasn't done that yet. He knows what he's doing. He is wise. He's loving. He knows exactly what he's doing. <clears throat> right. Where are we? Da, 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 da. Okay. Story this week. It's a messy one. This story takes seven chapters, which we're not going to read. We're going to read the psalm in a minute. It's a short one. But it's seven chapters. It's called Family Trauma. What happens is, so last week, those of you who were here last week, you would have heard about David and Bathsheba and, 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 and he's let off. God doesn't kill David. He doesn't judge him for his murderous adultery. But what he does do, he, there is judgment on the child that is uh, conceived as a result. And then, he says, and then Nathan the prophet says to him, you know what? There's going to be trouble in your house. 
There's going to be trouble. And, and, he, and, and it's a bit vague, but Nathan says, your very, your very companion will sleep with your wives. I mean, it's really nasty stuff. And then what you get, you get this <clears throat> seven or so chapters of absolute mess. David's got a number of wives and concubines. I'm not saying that's right for one moment. It's just how it was in those days. All right? It's not a comment. It's right. It's not right. But it is, it is what it was. It was what it is. It was what it was. Anyway, <clears throat> it meant that he had a lot of children that were half-brothers and half-sisters with one another as a result. He's got um, a couple of children by one particular wife, a son called, uh, sorry, a son called Amnon, and then he's, by another wife he's got a son called Absalom and a daughter called Tamar. Amnon is sick with love <clears throat> towards his half-sister Tamar, and he devises a way through cunning to essentially get her to be with him, and then he forces himself upon her. <clears throat> this is all found in 2 Samuel 12 to 18. Please do re- read it. It's, there's some amazing, incredible lessons in it, but it's very difficult. It's horrible. So it's incestuous rape. <clears throat> and then he casts her aside, because in, basically in that culture, if, if you were to force yourself on someone, they were then, in that sense, damaged goods, could never be married. Because they would look into these things before someone was given in marriage. So she could never then, therefore... Uh, be married, which back in that, those days it was just essential. <clears throat> but he casts her aside. Absalom, her brother, hears of it and devises a plan to kill his half-brother. He kills his half-brother and then he runs away. <clears throat> and then David, David is angered by this. Oh, before, Ab, sorry, no, before Absalom kills Amnon, there's a, there's a couple of years I think or so before, David hears of it and does nothing. David hears of it and he's angry but he does nothing. <clears throat> Absalom then devises a plot, kills Amnon. Then he flees out, out of, out of, to get out of the way because he knows what's, what will come his way. And then again, a few years later, David says, please, please come back. So he invites him back to Jerusalem, but he will not see him. He won't, David, won't, David doesn't, there's family trauma going on and David won't engage with it. He won't, he, he, he's an amazing warrior. Generally speaking, he's a wonderful king. When it comes to fatherhood, Husband, and looking after his own heart, he's in trouble. He's great out there. He's not so good the closer he gets. Introductory point number two. (laughs) Don't worry, I'll just cut some bits out. Don't worry, don't panic. It can be easy to give the best of yourself out there. In fact, easier at the expense of dealing with difficult family situations, difficult household, housemate situations, difficult things in your own heart. It's frankly easier, and you can look better. <laughs> People go, wow. You can give your best to your boss. Now, on one level, that's a godly thing. Work for those you work for as if working to the Lord, but it can go weird. It can be driven by fears and insecurities that are so common to all of us. And you end up neglecting or not giving the time and energy to those who, who, who have been entrusted to you in a more significant way. Because you're afraid of what will be thought of you or said of you. It's so, so easy. I think we need to see this in David's life. He's not looking after his heart properly. The Bathsheba thing shows that. He's not attending to his heart. He's not attending to family situations. I just felt the importance in preparing this of saying, attend to the stuff closest. 
attend to the stuff closest because then you get to live out of your center. It's so easy, particularly if you're successful at the things out there. It's so, the Bible talks about sin, sin which clings so closely. It's so, so easy to attend to the things out there when you're good at them. And as a result, you don't deal with, you don't address things that are closest to home. Let me tell you now, say it graciously, it will find you out. It will catch up with you. And it's a little bit like, <clears throat> it's a little bit like when you're driving a car and you're on empty, the gauge is empty, but you think it feels fine. <laughs> Do you ever notice that? A, a tank on 1%, the driver feels similar to a tank on 100%. You think, it actually feels all right. Maybe the gauge is wrong. <laughs> you keep going, then suddenly you're out. And at that point, you're out. That's what it's a bit like. That's what it's a bit like. So just urge you to keep an eye on that. It's important. Anyway, Absalom comes back. David doesn't talk to him for two years. During this time, Absalom, it would appear, is growing resentful in his heart. He begins to win the people's hearts of Israel. He goes to one of the gates. He begins to, he begin, he's a very handsome man. He's a wonderfully handsome man. Thick head of hair. Not a blemish from head to toe. Imagine. His hair is so thick and wonderful and, and long that he cuts it once a year and they, they tell you how much it weighs. I mean, wow. Uh, <clears throat> ladies, this guy is something. Um, and he's out, he's, out, he's out looking great. In the gate of the city, winning people's hearts and giving advice. And, and he says the people's hearts went over to Absalom. And mutiny is in his heart. And then there comes a moment where he, he sets himself up as king. And he's gathered a huge gathering by this point. People are fighting there with him. And David has to flee Jerusalem. So suddenly David is fleeing Jerusalem. He's, there's a, there, there, he's, there are people faithful to him that are, that are fleeing with him. But his own son... And he knows his own son will kill him if he'll catch up with him. And so he has to flee Jerusalem. And, and <clears throat> essentially, basically, the, I'm going to fast forward to the end of the story. It ends in, a, in warfare, open warfare, in a forest uh, where David's army fights Absalom's army. And David has said to his army, please don't kill the boy. He just loves him. Beat the army, but don't kill the boy. But the um, commander of his army, Joab, ignores that and... Puts three, three spears through his heart while he's dangling from an oak tree which his head got stuck in. It's quite a story. You can't make these things up. <clears throat> they throw him in a pit and throw a load of stones on top. Absalom's dead. David goes back to Jerusalem. Oh, sorry. In the meanwhile, before that happened, Absalom set up a tent on top of the palace in Jerusalem and slept in public. Well, in the tent, but, you know, in public view, slept with his father's concubines. This is an ugly story. It's a horrible, dark story. <clears throat> what can happen when you let things grow in your heart? What can happen when you let resentment grow in your heart? Where it can take you, the things you can do. Anyway, David comes back into Jerusalem and just is spending the whole time mourning for his son until he's... The commander of his army says, you've got to stop doing this. This is meant to be a day of celebration. You're making everyone sad, you know. And in the end, you know, things resolve themselves. So this is the story. This is what we're talking about today. David writes a psalm. Psalm 3. And it's going to be a short sermon on Psalm 3. Don't worry. 
But we're going to look at Psalm 3 where it says that. Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Okay, let's uh, read this together, shall we? O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Amen. Father, thank you for this psalm written under such duress, written in such unbelievable, unbelievably trying circumstances. We come here today, Lord, some of us are under pressure, some of us are feeling squeezed, some of us are feeling heavy. Lord, we thank you that your word is not written to people who are just doing fine, people who are just on holiday. Thank you, Lord, your word is, your word is proven in the furnaces of life. Thank you, your word speaks right into us, deals right, gets right to the heart. We just pray, Lord, if we spend a short time in this short psalm, do some great things that will last a long time, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know what Selah means? Basically, pause and reflect. Pause and reflect. So we're going to just look at it in these three sections, because there's three sections for us to pause and reflect. So the first is verses 1 to 2. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul. Listen to this. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Wow. Whew. That's hard. Called this, uh, the way I've described this section here is, is, is it's increasing personal attack and even God can't rescue me. Pause and reflect. Pause and reflect. We're going to look at David's experience here. We're going to look at Jesus' experience because David's a foreshadowing of Jesus. We're going to try and understand our own experience here. Increasing personal attack. Even God can't rescue me. Ever felt like that? <clears throat> I have. Okay, thank you. One other. I see your hand. <laughs> I tell you, I have. Sometimes you just think, and you could, you, you know, I mean, David here is not paranoid. He's not saying, he, even, even other people are saying, no one, you know, people are, people are saying this. People are saying, this, the king is gone. It's over. The anointed one's reign is over. God has left him. He's fleeing Jerusalem. You see? It's his reality. It's what it looks like. It looks like game over. It looks like he's done. He blew it. Anyone ever felt like they've blown it? Yes. It's important that we let this go in, that we don't just let it operate at a superficial level. Sometimes you just think, what's the point? What's the point of me? <laughs> and I, I, I know God's powerful, but uh, I don't know if he can quite reach to this situation. And you can have other people looking on going, wow, you've made a real mess. You can have people go, what? Is God's mercy going to reach you? Bear in mind, please, that part of what's going on here is God's discipline towards David. It's God's fatherly discipline. 
That is part of what's going on here. It's not like David's going, I don't, know, I don't know why this happened. He does know why this happened. It happened. You can source it back to Bathsheba. See, it's ever so important because sometimes things happen, bad things, and you don't know why, but at least your conscience is safe. Do you understand what I mean? Your conscience is going, well, I, I don't know what this is, but I know it's not my fault. Other times bad things happen and your conscience is not safe. You understand? Your conscience is going, this is you. You did this. Now, what happens in those situations? Because your conscience can start saying, you've blown it. You've gone too far. You've been too irresponsible. You made that decision. You know you shouldn't have. You were foolish. All of these things can be going on. And and you can just go, what's the point? Even God is not going to reach me now. Pause and reflect. David knows that feeling. Pause and reflect. You know that feeling. It's interesting. Jesus' own experience, Jesus never put a foot wrong. And yet when he's hanging on the cross, listen to what people are saying to him. It's very, very reminiscent of this. In Matthew 27, verses, uh, verse, where are we? <clears throat> verse uh, 40. They were saying to him, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, well, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if God desires him. Exactly the same. God can't even save you. You trust in God. Well, where's, this, where's, where's God's salvation? Where's God's deliverance? Even Jesus walked through this exact experience of people looking on at him and saying, that man is beyond the help of God. Because if God loved him, surely God would take him down from the cross. But look, God's just leaving him there. Pause and reflect. Jesus has been there. Jesus knows what it's like. Verses 3 to 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I've called this surrounded even when disciplined. Surrounded by God, even when disciplined. Look at the strength in David's conscience. Look at this here. He's saying, do you know what? Looks like it's all over. People are looking on saying it's all over. God can't even save him from this. Pause and reflect. What is God like? Result is this. David saying, I am surrounded by the love of God. Just stop there for a moment. I am surrounded by the love of God. He is a shield to me. He is my glory. I love this. He is my glory and the lifter of my head. You love that? I mean, he should be covered in shame right now. He's blown it. He's messed it up for everyone. All of this chaos everyone's experiencing can trace it all right back to him and his complacency and his laziness and his lust and his deceit and his sinfulness. And he's in that place. This is gospel confidence. This is when you get the gospel. You're in that place, okay? And you're not cocky. You're not saying, oh, well, God loves me. It'll be fine. There's none of that. Let me show you how there's none of that. As David's on his way out of Jerusalem, this man called Shimei, who's an old boy, and he's one of Saul's descendants, the previous king. He starts throwing stones at David and his companions and starts cursing David. David is surrounded by his mighty men. These guys, they kill people for fun. 
They kill giants with like six fingers on each hand and six toes on each feet. They do that, they do that as a hobby. And this old man, he's throwing stones at David and cursing him. And one of them says, we just, just go and deal with him? That's what David says. David says, no, don't do that. God might have sent him. God might have sent him. Maybe God's just wanting me to know right now. You're my son, and I love you, but you're an idiot. <laughs> and you know what? That's okay. God can do that. That's not unloving. That's God saying, I'm, I've got you. I'm surrounding you. I'm never going to let you go. But please learn. Please learn. Don't keep going around in circles. Don't keep making the same mistake. Come. It's just extraordinary humility where David goes, no, 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 no. Who knows? God might have sent him. And yet, within that, so he's not triumphalistic, he's not cocky, but within that he says, I'm surrounded by the love of God. He's my glory in the lifter of my head. That's gospel confidence. You go, you know what, I'm low, and maybe even God's bringing me low because I've got to learn some stuff, but he will never leave me, and he will never forsake me because I'm in Jesus Christ. You understand that? That's gospel confidence. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Jesus. Jesus cried out. David, he says, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. Jesus cried from the cross. Didn't seem like he got an answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Didn't seem like he got an answer. He's crying there from the cross. It looks, looks like a... What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But what I will say is this. The parallels in this story are extraordinary. You know, we're told that as David left Jerusalem, he walked up on the Mount of Olives, mourning and crying. The king has been exiled from the city of the king, goes up onto the Mount of Olives, weeps and mourns. It's the gospel. Jesus rejected by Jerusalem. They welcome him with palm leaves and then they reject him and they cast him out of the city and there he's on the Mount of Olives, weeping and sweating blood. It's extraordinary parallels. Incredible. We're being sent to Jesus. Never once does Jesus lose confidence in the Father. Never once. He says, he says everyone's going to forsake me, but he won't. He, won't. he somehow he knows. And yet we do know that on that cross there was this, there was this forsaken. There was this, he's a guilt offering that, that the Father, you know, kind of crushes him. You know? But even in all of that, Jesus knows he will not be eternally forsaken by the Father. He knows it. He's confident. He never, ever panics. I want to ask you a question us now what do you do when you're in this season all I'm asking is this do you go to him do you go to him or do you or do you withdraw from him hasn't got to be pretty hasn't got to be fancy prayers I'm just asking you do you go to him David I cried loud because I know he loves me final verses I love this I lay down and slept would you say, you're pursued, you're harangued, you're wanted, you're, you're, the top of the, you're on the top of the death list. I lie down and slept. I woke again, the Lord sustained me. I won't be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And then arise, O Lord, and talks about how God's going to destroy his enemies. It's wonderful. This is absolutely stunning. David 
was restored. Jesus, after the cross, had a bit of a sleep. Three days. <laughs> Three days. It was, it was death, but death couldn't hold him. He had a little sleep, really. And then he woke up. Because the Lord sustained him. The Lord heard his prayer. And the Father raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. He's alive today. King of kings. And Lord of lords. And the teeth of the enemy have been shattered by the cross. And the resurrection. And Satan has no more hold on us. No more claim on us. His accusations, he can throw as many as he likes. None of them are going to stick. Because we're in Christ. Hallelujah. This is the victory. This is the wonderful gospel victory. This is our inheritance in Christ. That even in the thick of it, there's rest, there's restoration, and there's victory. That's what Jesus has brought us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm going to say three quick applications, then we're done. Not done bad for time after all. Number one. Remember what I said near the start about this whole idea of this season where we're kind of waiting for God to fulfill and then God fulfills over time. Remember that thing at the start about that? I want to ask you guys, I want to implore you, I want to exhort you to respect the journey and learn to enjoy the journey. There is no silver bullet in this age. There is no if God were just in this age. Okay, I'm not saying that to be negative or to be down. What I'm saying is that is not the key to joy. The key to joy is learning to find him and his presence now, whatever's going on. That's the key to joy. So I'm not saying there's no joy in this age. No, no, no. But this idea of if God would just, if I can just, if this could just, if this prayer could. No. You'll get there and you'll go, oh, but. (laughs) There's fullness of joy and no more tears the other side. Okay, there's always tension this side. But if you can't find contentment in Jesus today, let me tell you, no matter how many prayers get answered tonight, you won't find it tomorrow. Sorry. (laughs) We can get so fixated with the destination, we forget that Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the goal when you've got Jesus now. Okay, therefore, if you're called home now, it's all good. You weren't that important to the purposes of God after all. Sorry. He's got plans for you, absolutely. And he wants to use you and all of that, I'm absolutely. But he can do it without all of us. You've got Jesus now. Learn to enjoy him now. Number one. Number two. Let's move together. Oh, no, no, no. One more thing on number one. Sorry. Because this is about our mission as a church together. Listen, if you learn to respect and enjoy the journey, others will notice. If you're just as wound up and anxious about what isn't yet and what you haven't got and what God hasn't done, it just becomes almost like a kind of a, I don't know how to even phrase it, a kind of like a God-infused version of worldly anxiety. You're just as discontent and anxious as everyone else. If you learn to respect and enjoy the journey and have Jesus as your goal, whom you have now, then there is a contentment, a peace, a joy. I'm not saying, you know, none of us get it perfect, none of us get it right, we all stumble. But we learn, we grow in this sense of, do you know what? It's okay, it's well with my soul. The Holy Spirit lives inside me, my sins are forgiven. I can come and sing no matter what season I'm in because nothing can, nothing can take this from me. Others will notice. Questions will be asked. And the Bible says, be ready 
to give an account when questions are asked. The Bible assumes questions will be asked because there's something going on in our soul that is just so different. So, so recognize others will notice them, others will ask. And when they say that, just say Jesus. It's just Jesus has done it. Okay. <clears throat> That's enough for starters. He's risen from the dead, he's alive, he's changed my life. That's a great one to start with. Okay, number two. Let's move together. David, throughout this whole experience, was in community. David experienced none of this in isolation. He had a personal relationship with God, a very strong one, but he's always in community. He's never out on a limb. He's never out. You've been watching Seven Worlds, One Planet? What's that? Gosh. The new David Attenborough. It's the clap, but it's classic. You see it every time. They go different content every time. Predators and prey. Which one gets eaten? The one separated from everyone else. So vulnerable when you're alone. Let's move together. Find community in Christ. Find fellowship in the local church. Running partners, gospel communities, mates. Find, find meaningful. Here's, here's, a, here's a revelation I felt I saw in my own heart today. I realised this. We need one another to tell one another the things we already know so that we'll actually do them. I'm going to say that again. We need one another to tell one another the things we already know so that we'll actually do them. Let me give you an example. I know how to, I know how to do a two-hour boxing workout. I know how to. I can write it down for you. I, I know what I know about skipping, pad work. I know about bag work. I know about circuit. I know about shadow boxing. I can do it. You know, for years, most weeks, I would do a two-hour. I, I can do it. Okay. If I decide to myself that I need to do a two-hour boxing workout now. I write it out and I'm by myself. If I'm on a really good day, I'll get through an hour. Normally half an hour max. And then I'll go and do something else like, I don't know, go and look at Davina or I don't know, just <laughs> something, something, something fun, you know. So I just, oh, this is boring. When I go to the boxing gym and CJ is there and he's telling me, and I already know what to do, but he's telling me what to do. I do two hours. I don't dare do less than two hours. I do two hours with injury. Because CJ's there telling me how to do it. Do you understand the point? You know what to do. You know to pray. You know to read the Bible. You know to go and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know to delight your soul in Jesus. You know to avoid darkness and sin. You know all those things. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, do you need other people in your life telling you to do or not do it? Yes. So you might say, well, I've got nothing new to say. It doesn't matter. Just say the old stuff. Say it lovingly. Give occasional gifts so they know that you, that you love them. But tell them what to do. Let's move together. Yeah, it's so, so important. Final point. We live in a generation without hope. We live in a generation without hope. It manifests in superficiality. It manifests in scepticism. It manifests in cynicism. But at the root of it, there's no hope. There's nothing solid to cling on to. There is no genuine, no sense of a bigger story. There's no sense of where this is going. There's no sense of my meaningful place in it. There's no sense of what the future holds. We live in a, it's utterly destroyed. It's been destroyed. As the, as the spiritual root of the nation has been pulled away. There's just this crumbling. There is no hope currently 
in our generation because the foundation has been pulled away. We have a sure and certain hope. As we live in that hope and don't fall foul of the same fear, anxiety, hopelessness, despair that is all around us, but we feed on gospel truth. We allow the truth of God to set us free. I tell you, we will have something to say to people. And it's not, you can do it. It's Jesus can fully redeem you. It's not just empty positivity. I understand why we have to work so, so hard at being so, so positive to one another about everything. It's because there's, there's no substance. And so you just have to keep bandaging the wound constantly. Just positive, positive. Just keep the thing from hemorrhaging. It's only so long that can go on for. It's only so long. People need hope. There is one hope that is sure and certain. It's the gospel. And as we live in that, we can say to people, as we understand these gospel truths, we can live from that place where we can say, you know what, Jesus can bring you the brightest future you can imagine. Jesus' government is a government of truth and not lies. Jesus' government is a government that will never be shaken. Jesus's, the victory of Jesus' government is sure and certain. You can tell people this. The response is with them, but we can tell them. And God will surely use it. Amen. Amen. Let's just have a little time to respond, shall we?